Why is it that most enterprise technology products are so hard to use? Is there any hope for the future of tech from banks, telcos, and retail giants? Hi, I'm Alec, the host for the Steadfast Cast. This week, we have Dave and Mitch from Tribal Scale dropping in to talk about UX in enterprise products. Tribal Scale is a top-tier design and development firm that focuses on mobile applications and IoT, and they do a ton of work with enterprise clients. Here's our conversation with Dave and Mitch about what's going on in the enterprise and why they are optimistic about the future of user experience in products from enterprise companies. Because the, the folks that put the rubber seal they on it. They actually do like an audit on it. Well, they probably cost an arm and a leg and you won't. No, the, the non-for-profits don't because they're funded by the government. Ah. Oh. Uh, okay, cool. Interesting. We'll sidebar that for after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically like what I wanted to chat with you guys about in particular was um, how you guys help your clients understand user experience today and what that means because I know you deal with a lot of the bigger enterprise kind of companies that maybe yep. aren't so up with the times about what today's users expect so the sort of framework that, that um, and some of this makes sense for you is we'll, we'll introduce you guys what you guys do how we can reach you what makes you guys awesome um, and then we'll talk about some of the challenges that you face in, in terms of working with clients and like how you get them there from understanding a user experience perspective. And then for startups that are sort of starting out trying to think about working with larger companies, you know, any tips that you would have for them for how to get there as well. Does yep. that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Cool. I threw Mitch into this Mitch, right after India. I was like, hey, we're going to go do this. Sounds good. We'll get a breakdown when we get there. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, cool. Did you hear? I assume we'll be able to do some editing. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. Cool. Um, okay. Well, welcome to the Steadfast Cast. Um, I'm thrilled here to be sitting with Dave and Mitch from Tribal Scale. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Thanks doing for having us in. Yeah, doing great today. <laughs> yeah. Lovely afternoon. Weather's doing okay. Holding up for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell, tell me a little bit about Tribal Scale, what you guys do, who your sort of clients are, um, and yeah. Yeah, so on our end, Tribal Scale is a mobile development company focused on a strong user experience, uh, but also with the strong engineering foundation. Uh, we also like to focus on that connected environment piece. So working with our mobile clients to help them understand what the connected world looks like. So an example would be connected retail stores, figuring out what that next step is and what that user experience looks like past the phone and into the real world. Just to build on what Dave is saying as well, um, he touched on the the strong engineering backbone, which is which is based in extreme programming, and we like to actually bring those kind of principles into uh, how we approach design and product management as well. So whether we're working with an enterprise or a startup, it's all about validating assumptions, figuring out what a proper MVP is, and then executing on that so we can get real user feedback as early and often as possible to make sure we're shipping the right thing. Now that I'm sure is a little bit challenging working with some of the <laughs> bigger companies. Yeah. Um, there's things that, that you know you obviously guys know today and, and I would know today about expectations for user experience that perhaps your clients are not as familiar with because for so long it's been just get it out there, throw it on the web, it's good enough, it's functional, it's who cares, right? 
So how has it been and what have the challenges been so far in terms of working with them, helping them understand that today's consumer expects more out of them and expects simpler and more powerful and more intuitive and more elegant? Yeah, on, on our side, I think it's really these large, enterprise un large enterprises understanding that they're not just competing against one another, but they're competing with the Facebooks of the world, the Googles of the world. So when you look at Canadian banks, for example, they just go, okay, well, there's four other major competitors other than ourselves in this space. Uh, but the fact is that your you know, banking app sits right beside your Facebook app and your Uber app. So the expectation is that your banking app has the same flawless execution and user experience as Uber and Facebook, uh, which 9.9 .9 times out of 10 isn't the case. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's really getting them to wrap their heads around that and understand that there's a much deeper enriched experience that they need to actually dive into and understand before pushing something out to the public. That's a really interesting juxtaposition there, you know, where you've got the, the banking app and then Snapchat, right? Yeah. One of the most engaging products of all time sitting next to, you know, my checking account. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> something I've never thought of before, right, just in terms of that kind of accessibility, because for so long, like our entertainment has been very far removed from our banking, our purchasing decisions, all that kind of stuff. And today, I guess they're all so close because it's all happening through one single device. When you go and talk with some of these customers, how do you help them understand that particular perspective of everything's happening through this one portal, it's in your pocket, and the fact that it's the size that it is, the speed that it is, um, that you're next to all these other tools there, like how, does, how do you help them understand that things are different today? So I was going to say, the, the fun thing I like to do is literally getting your client to pull their phone out and look at their home screen on their iPhone. And when they look at their home screen, they normally have, you know, Google Chrome. They've got a folder for, like, weather and, like, their photos. But then as you scroll down, they normally, in you know, my world, they've got, like, a sports app, their banking app, and then Facebook, you know, Instagram, Uber, and them going, oh, wow, like, that actually does make sense. We are looking at multiple different apps on my home screen and banking is sitting right in between Uber and Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other trick, or not trick, but reality I like to start bringing up is the, the market now compared to even just two or three years ago it is quite different from what consumers expect out of what was traditionally, like call it their banking app, their, they're managing their their cell phone plan or anything because you have these startups that are entering the space now that are actually starting to threaten that that business and their primary competitive advantage at first is UX. Um, the in Canada, the big one that like bubbles up right away is like the Wealth Simple, right? They they are literally um, growing so fast and starting to capture the millennial market, which is quickly becoming like the largest market as the baby boomers get older. And if I'm going to choose to invest my money, um, maybe I'm going to choose a product that I actually understand and can interact with um, through my Apple Watch or anything to get updates whenever I want. And banks are starting to feel that they're actually hearing about these things and, and losing um, all by like small parts of business now, but it's scary to what that could grow grow into. Um, so they're really starting to feel how you need to be listening to your your users and their clients from everything from the products they want to how they want to interact with them. So the conversation I think is getting easier um, and now it's a matter of helping them go from their old workflows that produced like the old experiences 
to these completely new workflows they need to s adapt to now to create um, a modern interface and modern experiences. So I want to come back to the workflow thing in a yeah. second, but can you just quickly describe like the the huge difference between something like a Wellsimple and the traditional investment alternative? What makes Wellsimple so much more engaging, so much more fun and, and enjoyable to use? So. Uh, um, if you if you sign up for Wealthsimple, or even if you don't sign up for it, and you go to their website today, um, the first thing that you'll probably notice is just the language. Um, you don't see things like mutual funds or ROI or hedging, like these kinds of words that people don't necessarily understand or are uncomfortable with. You clearly the first thing you see is how much money do you want to save. And how, how much time do you have? And oh, <laughs> I can get like, I could buy a car with that difference. Right. Like they just make it so real right away. Um, and that immediately makes it like approachable and like you can get there. Because for so long the model has been, you're an idiot, you don't know what to do with your money. Give it to me, I'm a professional, right? Here are a bunch of big words that you don't understand. Compliance, regulation, this, that, ROI. You then know, sign on the dotted line and pass it over. Sign on the dotted line and just give me like 20% of your paycheck every month. <laughs> right? No, it yeah, is. No problem. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. Can't wait. Yeah. No, e exactly that. So, 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 number one, so I said, so what are some of the big differences? So, language, which just makes it way more approachable. Um, once you actually uh, want to sign up for an account, uh, they, they understand what today's millennials how they approach signing up for any other account. You know, you give them an email address, maybe a phone number, and away you go. There's no visiting a branch. <laughs> uh, if I need to sign a there's, document. If there's anything I really love to do today, it's visit a branch. Yeah. That's like the perfect Friday afternoon activity. So, yeah, so there's no visiting <laughs> a branch. There's no signing a document. You know, there's an e-signature there. Um, really interesting thing about opening up uh, investment accounts is obviously your, your identity needs to be verified. The other, every, every major institution makes you go in person to sign on Inc. What they do is they actually ask you to take a picture with your phone of your driver's license to front and back and just send it to them. Done. So they, so they make the process of understanding the product getting and getting into the product incredibly easy. And then once you're there, um, the only thing you care about is how much money is there and am I up or down? And that's pretty much all they tell you. Wow. Really understanding exactly what you want to see. That's amazing. Exactly. So taking, taking that example, I mean, that's like a, there's a huge difference between the old model of investing and, and this new Wellsimple model. Um, coming back to the whole workflow idea, when you're going and talking to, to some of the clients that you guys have, and a lot of them are, the, are at the enterprise level, and do you try and explain to them what that difference looks like? Like, here's how you end up with a Wellsimple, and here's what the traditional model looks like. And, and, and look at the difference and look at the engagement. Yeah, typically, sides. you know, I guess I'll start with the old age and I'll pass it over to Mitch to run with the new age process. The old age was, let's get in a room, let's sit down, let's build out a business requirements document, let's put it through 15 different levels of approval, we'll then maybe get some budget, we'll start the work, and we'll have a deadline six months from now, and hope to God we hit it. Um, <laughs> The new age is more of, okay, let's get an MVP out the door, right? And, and how do we do that? We sit down, we throw an idea into, you know, call it a think tank or into a discovery process, which is what we call it at Tribal Scale. 
and iterate on it. Let's get some wireframes out there, some mockups. Let's test it with some potential users. Let's sit down and better understand how our users would interact with it, take that feedback back, run through another iteration on it, and then start building down the road versus just going all cylinders, starting to build on day one and hoping six months down the road you've got a product that may or may not work, but you've spent millions of dollars on it, so we're going to push it out into the market anyways. Right. That's tough. And, and obviously for us, like we're, we're really interested in where, do this, where does the end user fit in this process? And I know that you guys are very interested in, in getting that user into that process. So where, where, does, where in your build and discovery do you go and talk to those users and you bring them into, into sort of the build almost? As early as we can. And by as early as we can, I mean potentially before we even start doing anything if we're able to get them in that early. So So wait, pause. Before you start that engagement, you've already sort of lined well, up. Well, technically we need to have the engagement, I guess, like started <laughs> before we can do anything. <laughs> but I like the philosophy of no, it. Yeah. That's, that, yeah. that's amazing. No, exactly. But in, in an ideal scenario, we would like to be speaking um, to users as soon as we understand uh, who our user is. So the, one of the first design exercises we end up going through is building a persona. Um, and typically, the building a persona is going to be coming from a few things. It's going to be coming from how they understand their, their current market um, and then how, how they view this, where they view this product fitting into um, this potentially new market. And, and we would build a persona. And once we have a persona, the first thing we would want to do is actually validate that persona and, and we'll bring in people at that point in time. So for all the listeners out there that aren't familiar with the idea of what a persona is, can you give them a really two-sentence two description? Yeah, so a persona is actually, um, it, it's your like three-sentence like byline if you're to describe your like generic self, you know, like millennial with a middle-income job living in downtown Toronto could be enough of a persona. So it's kind of like the archetype yeah. archetype of your user. Exactly. exactly. Um, and generally speaking, we would actually like build out this persona to be quite a bit more detailed than that. But at the, the, at the highest level, that's kind of the first thing we want to be looking for in people and then validating that. Um, and that allows us to make sure we can stay focused throughout the discovery process and then the building process that we're building the right thing. And whenever we need to bring users into the process, we, we have a, a pretty good archetype of who we're looking for. Right. And so typically, as you're getting started on this project, the kinds of questions you're looking to answer are, OK, what problem are we solving for this person? How often does it present itself? Where does it present itself? Um, what's the context for this problem? And then as you move forward in the process, it's okay, we have some designs and prototypes. Is this gonna work with them? Do they understand the flow? Do they understand what these different functionalities and features do? And as you go through that, you sort of figure out exactly what that MVP looks like. Is that, is that exactly. That, yeah, that's the process. And one of the really important things that we need to do though at the very beginning is it's one thing to build a persona, uh, but it takes a little bit more work to get everybody on board with um, agreeing that this is whom in fact we're building it for. Because in the traditional model, um, we are often building it for whomever the stakeholder is. 
<laughs> not necessarily the 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 actual user because we need to be able to use that that persona to validate that we are in fact um, building the right experience. So this is actually a really interesting problem right here that I bet a lot of our startup listeners have. When you're going and dealing with an enterprise client or a, most, a lot of B2B clients, um, or a lot of clients when you're a B2B company, you have almost two customers here, one or two users that you've got to keep in mind. One is the stakeholder, the person making the purchasing decisions, and then the other is the end user, right? And sometimes those aren't the same people, and especially when, you're, when the, those two groups are very, very different, like for example, if, you're, if your client is the VP at a bank and your user is a 25-year-old you know, graduate student yep. uh, living, living in <laughs> Kingston, Ontario, uh, that disparity can, I imagine, lead to some pretty big issues. How do, you, how do you help bring the stakeholder around to understanding the experience and the needs of it comes back user. to the process and, you know, to Mitch's point earlier, you may not have just one persona, you may have a couple of them, right? So using the wealth simple example, um, I'm sure that they're just not targeting, you know, younger, you know, fresh grads, you know, 25, 26 year old individuals. They probably want some high net worth folks, but they're, when they're building out their, their platform, their, their focus is how do we keep this easy and simple, right? Uh, when working with larger banks, it's kind of backing it up and going, okay, if, you know, week one, we've got this persona of Jim and he's 49 years old. And next week, we've kind of iterated on that and it's actually, it's Sally and she's 32 years old. Um, we may use both of those when testing the market. And we'll take that information back and that feedback from both of those personas and continue to iterate on the product before we even start any development whatsoever. So on a tactical level, it's basically taking the data from talking to the users, whether that's a conversation or two, or, or ideally many, I suppose, um, or whether that's you know, something more quantitative and bringing that back into the discussion with the stakeholder, is that sort of the way that you help them understand that it's a little bit different than maybe what they thought initially? Absolutely, you can look at it as simple as show and tell, right? right. <laughs> you, you really need to dumb it down and walk them through why you're doing things a certain way. Uh, to help them get out of the old way in which they used to build or approach their product. And when you're able to break down that barrier, most folks really do embrace it. And they understand it and they jump in head first and they're ready to go. That doesn't necessarily happen overnight, <laughs> yeah. but it does happen if you're able to walk them through why you're doing things and actually have them involved in the process itself. Yeah, most stakeholders can get on board with the fact that they, they are in fact targeting a certain persona and once you start doing any type of user testing, you you can quickly verify um, you can quickly verify whether those those features or, or that experience you're building is resonating with the persona or not. Uh, and that stakeholder can see like firsthand, like oh, that idea that I wanted that made it into this first prototype, the the persona is just not reacting to it at all it, it's not having any impact and that's a pretty that's a pretty powerful indicator of oh i i guess like i guess this persona thing is is, is like real <laughs> if we if we target this user and just because i want this feature they don't necessarily align right so you empirically it, show it i guess is it kind of like that aha moment when they really see it for the first time does that is that what you see 
when you show them that maybe that first video or the con that first conversation? It's actually recorded? amazing when you watch a client have an aha moment and they're sitting in the room with you and it could be internally between you know our team and theirs working through prototyping and you see them go, oh wow, that doesn't make sense the way I wanted it. And you let them come to their own realization. So as much as we are telling the client that you're wrong, you're letting them come to their own conclusion that they're wrong. Right. Um, which takes a little bit of finesse and a little bit of, you know, kind of dancing around the edges on. But when you do cross that moment, you're able to move at a much more rapid rate. And it's a lot easier to do that when you're prototyping and doing wireframes and designs before development because they're not attached to the dollar figure at that standpoint, or at that point in time, sorry. Uh, if you're doing it in development, you do user testing towards the end of a product, and they've spent a million plus dollars on building this product out, no matter what that user testing comes back with, they're gonna move forward with the product they have built. But if you do that at the beginning of the engagement, you let that guide how the development and the engagement's gonna go, it allows them to pivot quickly at the very beginning and make those changes before they're financially invested. That's a huge point. So, I mean, we always talk about, yeah. um, and we've seen firsthand the costs of, of getting, going through that development cycle and, and getting ready to launch, and then seeing that it's, it's not quite right, it's not product market fit, feature market fit, whatever, yep. whatever it is, but it's, it's painful at that point to try and turn back, right? It's almost like anything out the door is better than nothing. And in some cases, that's not actually true. So the mentality of talk to users early, talk to users often, is really driving the conversation forward between you and your clients and helping them come to understand really how to make them happy. Well, and the other piece to that is, you know, software is not going to be perfect when you push it out the door no matter what. It's software. It's always going to have an edge case bug here, an edge case bug there. But if you've got the right persona from day one and you're building towards a common goal and you're iterating on it and you release something, the key is to not just stop user testing at that point in time. You should continue doing user testing. You should review the feedback that you're getting in any app store or any forums and start baking that into what could be a 1.1 or a 2.0 release. Uh, so it's that iterative approach to continue to build your product out. Um, if you look at many products, you know, even using Uber as an example, they've just changed their whole UI, UX, design, and everything. I don't know if that's for the better or the worse. It's <laughs> getting used to. There's a lot of ambiguity uh, right? uh, <laughs> about that. But that's an example of how you know, even a large brand that had a very recognizable you know, icon has changed something in the past six weeks. Um, they're iterating, they're changing, they're trying things. They're getting rid of Uber Puppy and trying Uber GIFs, right? They're, they're doing a bunch of different things just to test the market. And if you're able to do that and you're able to rapidly develop, you have the opportunity to at least test something. Doesn't work. Eh, tear it down, try something new. Right. I think that's actually a really important uh, piece to keep in mind. Of if it doesn't work, tear it down, try something new. The point of building small and building an MVP isn't to end up launching with the perfect thing. It's to learn something and get one step closer. Right. And the same is true with user with user testing and bringing users into this into the cycle. It, it's not to validate. If you're trying to validate the entire product at a single point in time or all at once, it's going to be very difficult to do so. You need to line it up in such a way where you can validate like specific things, um, fail and pivot, or validate and move forward. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point and something that we have advised a lot of the companies that we work with. We, we actually had a recent um, company come to us, and, and they wanted to test like the, the 
the imagery and messaging and whatnot of their homepage. Like, you know, people show up and boom. So they had like 16 different variations, right? All slightly different from each other. Some they changed the background, some they changed the wording or whatever. And from, from the perspective of a user, even me knowing their brand, knowing what they were trying to do, it was impossible to distinguish between them all, right? And so what we had to do is say, okay, let's take a step back. What, what are the specific things that you're trying to evaluate here? Okay, one of them is the background image. What are you trying to accomplish with this background image? Well, we want something that communicates these feelings and this kind of a message. Okay, so give me the different options, the three or four options you have for the background image. Let's get people to evaluate those background images based on the, whether or not they communicate those feelings. Okay, now we can focus on the messaging, right? Which messaging communicates those same feelings as well? Now you can take those and put them together and now you have the right background you know, or imagery and now you have the right messaging. Now you have something that's ready to convert. Yep. But taking a step back, breaking down the specific things that you're looking to test, that you're looking to evaluate, and not trying to sort of throw everything against the wall and then throwing all your users and testers at it and just saying, okay, feedback time. Yeah. You know, Which one of the 16 did you like? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I have no idea. It's, it's another thing that we also talk about with surveys. One of the biggest mistakes I see with surveys all the time is that you ask questions that a user would have no way of knowing an answer to, right? So, you know, if you have 80 different options, it's impossible in anyone's mind to c contrast 80 different things, no matter how different or, or similar they are. You gotta make it easy for them to, to give you, to tell you what they think based on what you're trying to learn. So always constraining, always limiting, and, and narrowing in and focusing on the real things that you want to learn at any given point in time, I think is key. Exactly, and that kind of comes back to what Mitch had mentioned earlier with the MVP model, right? You don't want to just push something, some massive, huge product out the door without validating and testing the market. And by honing in on what an MVP could look like, at least you're getting something in the market and you're learning from it, you're testing it, you're getting feedback, and you're able to either pivot quickly or tear down, start again, but you're not invested 18 months into something and realizing that you've already missed the boat for it. Um, kind of that. Yeah, we could be pretty <laughs> confident in whatever you ship the first time is probably not going to be 100% there anyways. <laughs> so you might as well ship a smaller thing and then the second, one, the, the second time you do it, you're gonna be much closer to target. Yeah. So it's funny, because for us, I, I was first employee at a, at a startup and we took way, way, way too long to launch. And I told myself, when I, if, I, if and when I start a company, we're not gonna take too, too long to launch. We're gonna launch something quick. Yeah. Sure enough, made the same mistake. And I think <laughs> it's a really easy thing for, for yep. founders to get into because it's, it's like their baby. Yep. It's, it's something that you care so much about. You don't wanna release something that's ugly, painful. So when you go and you talk with, with, these, with these customers, these clients, how do you help them think through that of really figuring out what that minimum releasable product that delivers some amount of reasonable value to a user. Um, how do you help them think through that and what sort of advice would you have for a founder today that's maybe looking at starting their own company and they got all these grand ideas for a gajillion features and how they could all fit together. What's the framework by which you can go in and say, all right, this is the first piece and this is what's going to go out? Read Lean Startup. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but to, to, to take pieces fr from Lean Startup is is breaking away from the, the MVP that you ship is not going to be your final product. So to break away from that idea, it's okay to ship something um, for the goal of learning from it. And that, that's what your motivation is 
in shipping the MVP. If, if you ha go into the process thinking the first thing you ship, the goal is for success to come from that immediately, um, you're, going, you're, you're going to take forever to ship it because you're constantly gonna be learning things and finding things before you ship that validate that, oh, yep, I wasn't, I, I wasn't completely there. Like, I, I misread this. Um, I don't get this particular user in the market. Whereas if you go in with the goal of validating like the single most important thing in your business, like the thing that's going to sink it or not, and you build like that and ship it, um, then you could walk away from the situation knowing that whatever the outcome, if it failed, you just de-risk the most like the the most dangerous risk in your business. And if you validated it. You're just ready to now finally break through and and start building, you know, whatever these differentiating features are or whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, and the other piece of that is also just time to market. If you're going to sit there and build for months and months and months and months and months on end, you're never going to get there. And somebody that does release something beforehand then has the upper hand within the marketplace. We were talking to a startup that flew in from San Francisco, and they've been working on their platform since 2012. Holy and smokes. they have not released anything to date. And when you think about that, that was four years ago. We're in 2016 now. And we walked them through that and they had an aha moment going, okay, you're right, we need to just wrap this up and get it out and start working on what the next release would be. We're not saying that all those features you have in your backlog aren't important. We're just saying break it down to the core of what your product's gonna be, get it out into market, and then start planning your next release listening to the feedback, getting user testing done, and continuously release into the marketplace. That's, that's a really scary story. It's funny too because <laughs> things, a lot changes in a really short amount of time in tech. And like things like brand new um, li libraries come out that make yep. things that used to be really hard and heavy to build super easy. I can think of one example, um, Google's WebRTC is making video streaming and screen sharing unbelievably simple to build and implement <laughs> into just about any product. So if you yep. have been spending the last eight to 12 months building a, any kind of screen sharing, video sharing service, You're you know, any competitor can now be past where you are because it's also a much more scalable technology. It has way lower server costs because it's peer to peer. Uh, th they're now in two weeks up to the point maybe past where you were after eight to 12 months. Well, that's another piece is, you know, embracing open source technology, right? There's a lot of cool libraries out there. A lot of people have done groundwork to get just even the foundation. It's not that you can't, you know, ingest it and, you know, make it your own. But, you know, that alone can sometimes get you ahead of your competitor just because you're embracing certain technologies. A lot of enterprises, a piece that they struggle with is exactly that. They're stuck to a list of things that they can and can't use. And if it's not on the list of things they can use, they don't, and it puts them at a disadvantage out of the gates. Where startups have the advantages, they're building their foundation from scratch right now. Uh, take a look at the technologies out there, embrace what's out there, and make it your own, bring it in, plug it in, and use that as at least a jumping off standpoint versus having to deal with like a mainframe, old school technology stack. Right, so sort of like trying to, to wrap this up a little bit, Tell me what you think the most, as somebody who's launched and built and launched a lot of products for a lot of different people, a lot of big clients, what are the most important takeaways from, from, what, from your experiences doing that that you think that founders could learn from um, that would help them get 
to market faster, learn faster, build something successful faster. And we may have touched on a number of them yeah. already. So. Yeah. yeah, I was uh, validation. So you need to validate um, the the riskiest parts of your of your business and product, and you need to validate your your features going forward. And, and validation, for for the most part, often means bringing in who would actually use the product, and making sure that it actually suits and solves their problem. And you need to do it early. Talk to users early and often. That's it. it. And that's who we're building <laughs> products for, right? Is users. <laughs> and I, I tag on to that. Don't think you have to build everything all at once. You know, back to Mitch's point, validate, yes, but focus on your core competencies. Build that out before you dive too far into being the most feature-rich product out there. When that'll just kill your timelines. It'll allow you not to speak to users because you're focusing on too many different areas. It'll just mess everything up out of the gates. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So where can we find you online? And where, where, where can we contact you on know, Twitter, email, anything like that? Yeah, so we're Tribal Scale. So I'm Mitch at tribalscale.com. Uh, Twitter, underscore Maven. And uh, you know, hit us up anytime. It's always fun to talk tech. Yeah, and I'm Dave at Tribal Scale. Dave at tribalscale.com. <laughs> and uh, take a look at our website. We're actually doing a refresh. It's tribalscale.com. I feel like I said that a lot right now. And then uh, our Twitter handle for the company is at tribalscale. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming in. I think uh, it's a really useful experience to, to hear from people selling to the enterprise, especially for startup founders. It's not something that we have a lot of experience doing. And there's a huge opportunities there to bring really innovative technologies and solutions there. Absolutely. So thanks so much for coming in, guys. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for having us in. This was fun. Awesome. Thanks to Dave and Mitch from Tribal Scale for stopping by to shed some light about enterprise tech. You can follow them on Twitter with the handle at TribalScale. As usual, a special shout out goes to the DMZ at Ryerson University, our venue and tech sponsor. If you're building a great startup in Toronto, go to dmz.ryerson.ca to find out why this is a great place for your business to grow. And finally, if you're building a startup and aren't sure where to go for feedback, Steadfast Beta can help. We've got lots of smart, tech-savvy people ready to talk with you to help you refine your startup and build something your users will truly love. Go to steadfastbeta.com or reach out to us on Twitter with the handle at steadfastbeta. Thanks for tuning in. We hope to hear from you next week.